0: father thank you for the many blessings we each have received in the last week since we were here father things that we may take for granted many things father that have added to the quality of our life added to the opportunity to witness or to walk out our faith in many ways thank you father for the chance to witness for that week and a a night tonight father to learn and be equipped for more good work how many men and women in the faith father are walking in their lives today without the benefit of so much of what is provided in Scripture, Father. They, they walk blindly, in a sense, but still within your grace. And, Father, yet we have been granted an opportunity to know these details. So, Father, we, we ask you to not only reveal more of them to us, but you'd also reveal, Father, what purpose you had to see fit in giving us this, this rich blessing. How are we to put it to use, Father? Show us that as well. And I pray that the Holy Spirit, as always, would guide all that's said in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Somewhere in the last, oh, must seem like years, we studied First Isaiah. And that was chapters 1 through 39, which we've said many times corresponds to, in a loose sense, the Old Testament. In, some, in, in, in terms of themes and, among other things, just the number of books. Corresponds to the number of chapters. After we got to chapter 40, we started 2nd Isaiah, and we said it was divided into thirds. And the first third takes us right up to about chapter 48. How do you divide these thirds? What do they correspond to? To the Godhead. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not the extent of what's in each of these thirds, of course, but it's a great uh, shorthand way of understanding what's at focus in each of these thirds. For example, we said the father's principal concern as he is speaking to the nation through this first third is his sovereignty, his unrivaled authority and glory, his hatred of idols or anything that would compete for man's faith and, and worship. And all of that, all of that attention on his sovereignty, on his on his glory and on the inadequacy of idols is directed at moving uh, Israel out of idol worship and into a recognition of the the son, of of his Messiah to come. And he uses part of this third, if you remember, to introduce his son. We've covered that already. He uses a lot of it to repeat that he is sovereign and idols are nothing. And there was a comparison made at the very beginning of this section to tell us why he's going to all this effort. He makes a comparison to uh, what they used to do before a king would enter into a new territory the same comparison that John the Baptist makes about himself or that Scripture makes about him. He makes straight paths, right? He he makes the hills low and he makes paths smooth. His point is to make it an easy entrance for the king. So the God, the Father, this first third of 2nd of Isaiah is directed toward making the entrance of the Son easy into his coming kingdom. First, when he arrives as a prophet in the time of, that he came to earth the first time. How is his arrival made easy in that sense? We said already, idol worship is is non-existent. It dominates Jewish culture until the Babylonian captivity. It's completely absent is in, in Jewish culture after the Babylonian captivity. No record whatsoever of Israel ever engaging in idol worship after they return from Babylon. So he abhors idols. He declares them to be inadequate compared to who he is. He says, I'm going to deal with them. I'm going to judge you over them. And to do that, I'm going to take you to Babylon. And as you come out of Babylon, I will have dealt with idols once and for all. That sets up his son's arrival. That's a, that's a way in which the path has been made smooth. If God the Father had sent his son into an Israel that was still in the midst of idol worship, who would care about one more God? So he, deal, he that's the principal issue here. Then the son's focus, when we get there in a, in a week or two, is going to be looking at The suffering servant, the role that Christ played in presenting grace, in making grace available, and then the Holy Spirit's role will come in the last section, which we'll look at more as we get closer to it. Tonight is all about sovereignty. Let's go into the text. I want to take you back to the last verse of chapter 43, where we left off to set you up into what starts in 44. Because last week, God had revealed that Israel would be restored on the basis of grace alone. You remember the very end of chapter 43? He asked them, what merit do you have? He says, put me in remembrance, meaning remind me. That's a fancy way of saying remind me. Let us argue our case together. State your cause that you may be proved right. Or another way to say it is state a case for why you deserve or why you're righteous, why you deserve my favor, why you are right. And then his case to them is your, four, your first forefather sinned, Jacob. He was a sinner. Your spokesman has transgressed against me. Spokesmen refer to priests, prophets, kings, judges. So your best, the best of you sinned against me. The first of you sinned against me. So he says, what case do you have for merit, meriting my favor? He says, it won't be on the basis of merit. It will only be on the basis of grace. Verse 25 earlier, he had said, I will wipe out your transgressions for my own sake. Not for yours, but for mine. But then the last verse, this is where we start tonight. He says, So, I will pollute the princes of the sanctuary, and I will consign Jacob to the ban, and Israel to revilement. The meaning of verse 28 is twofold. The princes of the sanctuary, who are they? Who would you guess them to be? The sanctuary is the temple, the priests. So the priests are the princes of the sanctuary. There's other places in the Old Testament, particularly, I think, in First Chronicles, among others, where you see that term specifically used to describe priests. So we can see that elsewhere. But it is the priests. They are polluted in what way? Well, knowing that God the Father's section here in Isaiah is always talking about Babylon and about how they will become the ones God uses to judge them for their idol worship. The polluting here references how the Babylonians destroyed the temple in 586 B.C. So their, their sanctity was polluted. This holy, reverential place that only priests could go, non-priests came into it and destroyed it and polluted it in that sense and polluted the priesthood. Jacob is the nation, right? Jacob and Israel are names for the nation. They are consigned to the ban, meaning banished from their land and revilement which is a reference to the way they become captives in Babylon, placed into slavery, reviled by their captors. captors. These are just subtle references to the Babylonian captivity that God's already described earlier in this book. So you have God saying at the very end of 43, hey, I'm going to save you, ultimately, as a nation. And it's going to be by grace, not by merit. Meanwhile, I have a plan for you that comes as judgment upon you because of your idol worship. 28 then, verse 28, sets up chapter 44. So chapter 44 is the judgment described in that last verse. It is a description of what he is going to do and how he will eventually redeem them. Look at 44, verse 1. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. And I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord. And will name Israel's name with honor. In the passage that we just read here. From the discussion at the end of 43, he moves into saying, but I've chosen you, I've formed you, so don't fear this judgment. Like water on the ground, I'm going to pour out my spirit on you and my blessing on your descendants. The result of that is faith, a faithful response, and dedication to the Lord. A generation that returns to the Lord, therefore, is going to come up from the generation that goes into captivity. Remember, the Babylonian judgment came as a result of Judah's sins under the Old Covenant. So their sin under the Old Covenant brought them to the point where God has to take these steps against them, just as he promised he would do back in Deuteronomy. And if you go back and read Deuteronomy, you read him saying that he would do these very same things because they failed to keep the covenant, because they worshipped other gods. They are going to therefore be judged. Removing idols from Israel was God the Father's way of making a straight path for his Son. so he's going to take that step of Babylon to get rid of them. He uses a term Jeshuan. You see that in the text? It's in verse uh, 2, Jeshuan. It's not a common word. In fact, it's only used here and in Deuteronomy. It's an affectionate term for Jacob. It's another way of saying Jacob. It's an affectionate term for his name. The fact that it's only used here and in Deuteronomy would be a clear indication to a Jew who is reading these verses that it's meant to reference the Deuteronomy, the covenant, that is the reason they're in trouble. When did he fulfill this restoration? Now, the question comes, is he describing the restoration that took place when they left Babylon and come back? Or is this the restoration that's promised in the millennium? Well, the descendants of this generation, of the one that goes into captivity, they do respond to an opportunity According to the leading of the spirit, just as Isaiah said would happen when they're given an opportunity to leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem. It's said probably best in Ezra, the very first five verses of the book of Ezra, which is the book that describes Israel's return from the Babylonian captivity. Listen to what Ezra says. First five verses of the book. He says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the father's households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose. Listen, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So who responded to Cyrus's offer to return those whose spirit God had stirred up. That's in keeping with what Isaiah says earlier, when, Isaiah, when God speaking through Isaiah says that he would have these descendants stirred by the spirit of the Lord, calling upon the name of Jacob and riding on their hand, belonging to the Lord, a faithful group wanting to return. Keep in mind, this is no small accomplishment on their part. They had lived better part of 50, 60, 70 years in captivity in a foreign land, by the way, it's totally unsettled, and it's abandoned, and it's, it's just wilderness, surrounded by enemies. I mean, the whole prospect is daunting, and as a result, you're not likely to take up the offer. The thought that you're in captivity doesn't, overwhelm, doesn't overcome the fact that your alternative is no better, for most people anyway. That's what made the pilgrims, I think, such remarkable people. They were more interested in, in uh, religious freedoms and, and political freedom to a certain extent. And we're willing to go to the trouble to come across the other side of the world into uncharted territory. That's not a small thing. So here you have the same opportunity, but it's God's spirit that stirs up the ones who are willing to do it. Now, I'm saying all of this to simply illustrate that perhaps this is the moment that Isaiah is speaking of when he promises, when God promises that he would still restore them. But there are some descriptions within the text of Isaiah that I've already read that are not consistent with, what you just saw or what we know happened back in this time as they left Babylon. Uh, for example, you, you don't see the entire nation obviously turning to the Lord and they didn't turn to him in a permanent way. As a, as a nation, they, they didn't remain that faithful group that started the return. And as a result, you would expect that there's another or perhaps another way to say it is the real true fulfillment of this passage still awaits that what you saw happening as they left Babylon wasn't truly the fulfillment of God's promise here, though it has some similarities. Then that would mean that it waits for a future day. And when you see the future day of Babylon defeated again, only now we're talking about the spiritual Babylon of Revelation, the one that the Antichrist will lead. You have the Spirit poured out on Israel again, but now it's the one that we've already studied in here, the one that leads to the nation of Israel as a whole, coming to faith and calling out for Christ, as we saw in Zechariah 12. And it's a period in which people are writing on their hand belonging to the Lord and saying that they are of of Jehovah because as a nation they are all believers and come into a millennial where they remain so forever. That would seem to be the better way to view these verses, that Isaiah, in other words, is pointing forward to that day as he's describing this redemption. He wasn't alluding to what would happen merely at the conclusion of the Babylonian captivity. That would be my view of it. Now, from that point in Isaiah, God the Father now returns to something we've seen him do already in this first third of 2nd Isaiah, he begins to emphasize his unrivaled role in his creation. Now, this is where sovereignty begins to come to the foreground. And before the night's over, it's going to become the issue. All right, sovereignty. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God beside me who is like me. Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to me the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. I have not long since, have I not long since announced to you and declared it and you are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me or is there any other rock? I know of none. Okay, God the Father here is doing what he's done at several points already in this first third. He contrasts himself to idols. Now, You know, in our culture today, idol worship is not common. Culturally, I'm saying Western, you know, largely Christian or nominally Christian culture. We don't see idol worship in the traditional sense. I think that's one reason why we have started to use that word a bit loosely. Their money is their idol, their career is their idol. Leaving room for the possibility that that's true in a few cases. Apart from those few cases, the reality is that's not the right use of the word. You'll see here in Isaiah himself... An idol is something specific and offensive to God because of how we treat it. There are plenty of ways in which things get in the way of a good Christian witness. Material things, emotional things, relationship things. There's a lot of ways in which we can compromise our walk or our witness because of what we find affections for. That's, that's appropriate concern. But that's not the same thing as having an idol. That trivializes the meaning of what an idol is, to call everything that gets in the way of our walk an idol. And I think when you look at how Isaiah is going to use the term and how God is going to use the term in this chapter and in the next chapter, I think you'll agree with me that an idol is a specific thing. There are certainly idol worshippers in the world and even in our neighborhoods, perhaps. But that's, that's not just the effect of someone who is distracted by some affection. God the Father here uses a very important term that starts to show you where he's going in the text. He says, I am the first and I am the last. Now, we've seen it already once. We're seeing it here second. We're going to see it again later in in this first third. It comes up toward the end of the first third here. So there's three uses of this term. I am the first and the last in which God describes himself that way. The father describes himself that way. The only other time in all of the Bible that you see those terms used also three times is in the book of Revelation where the son describes himself that way. So three times in Isaiah, three times in Revelation, the first three are God, the father, the second three are God, the son. So the intersection of God, the father and God, the son as eternal, both of them eternal, comes together here in this section in first Isaiah. By the time we get to chapter 48, we're going to reach a point where this intersection of the father and the son comes together. So in other words, he's starting to talk about himself And you'll see from other scripture that those same descriptions are also used for the son. Right now, it's just a bit loose. You don't really see it in this text. You have to know about Revelation to get the point. But by the time we get to chapter 48, he's brought the two together. And it's probably the clearest description of the Trinity in the entire Old Testament. comes up in chapters 48 to 49, which makes sense because 48 concludes the father and begins the discussion of the son. So there's an intentional moving of the two together in the text until we get to that juncture. So here's the beginning of it. Father, first, and the last son will eventually be seen to be the same in Revelation. Then, moving to verse 7, he starts to describe himself from a sovereign point of view, from the point of view of sovereignty, in three ways. First, he says, I'm the first and the last, meaning I am the God of eternity. There's never been anything before or after me. Second, in verse 7, he says, I'm the God of history. So all the nations on the earth were established by God. And he's mocking those who would claim to have power to rival God. He says, so tell me how the, how the beginning was. Were you there with me in the beginning when I made the ancient nation? And then third, verses seven and then into eight, he says he is the God of the future or a God of prophecy. How is he demonstrating his sovereignty? His existence in an eternal form his determination of history from the point of view of the past, setting everything up the way he wanted. He created the past the way he wanted, and he can predict the future, which is one of those hallmark features of sovereignty. Anyone who can know the future is demonstrating they are sovereign over it. It's not enough to say God knows the future. That's missing the point. He knows it because he made it so, because it is the way he wants it. All of these facets of God's sovereignty stand apart from what idols do. Idols clearly have none of those powers, demonstrate none of those abilities. The Father now gives this monologue of sorts explaining the futility and the stupidity of idol worship. And here's where we start to see what true idol worship looks like, meaning it's, it's true biblical sense. Verse 9, those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a God or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and... Makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and he warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a God and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts the roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself, saying, Ah, why am warm? I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot comprehend. No one recalls. Nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire and also baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it, and then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? He starts at the beginning there saying a graven image. So a graven image is anything that is cast in the image of God, but not necessarily the true God but what I think God to be. That's by definition what graven means. Something I consider holy or graven is the, the term. An idol is a graven image. A graven image is not necessarily truly God. Somebody says, oh, don't have a painting of Jesus in your home. That's like a graven image. You're trying to present God's face. Well, I could also have a picture of Hare Krishna, and that's a graven image. Not because that's God, but because I think it's God. That's makes, that makes it graven in my mind. Something set apart, something holy. And then he goes on to say, who is fashioned to God or cast an idol to no profit? In other words, the men who go about making these for other men are doing it as a business. It's a business. Their business is to make these things and sell them because somebody wants them. So he makes a sarcastic comment about those who are providing them. There's nothing holy or special or sanctified about where the material comes from or where the images come from. They're just being produced, mass produced. How does that make them God? And then, of course, that's why he says they will be put to shame themselves. All these graven makers are of no account to God. Then he starts talking about the man who would do it for himself. And he mocks him the whole way through. And I don't have to elaborate. You saw it yourself. The foolishness of how he turns to a block of wood and from the same material, something's common and yet is also his God. Now, that's where I think you get to the true definition of idol worship, meaning it's something that's physical that we can put in front of us, make ours, hold in our right hand, physically something that represents God to us, and we don't just treat it as symbolic, we treat it as literal. I think that's inherent in this. Someone who says, I bow down before it. Now, you could argue, well, there's a difference there without distinction, because for some, they see this little wooden picture as simply the representation of the God they can't see otherwise, and so they bow down before it. But in reality, what's the difference? They had to go get this thing before they started the bowing. So the bowing was to the object because it meant to to them, it meant they were in the presence of their God. Whether it was simply symbolic or not becomes a minimal difference at, at best. And the focus is still in the reality of that object. It's still physical. It's not spiritual. So it's a fleshly act done for fleshly purposes. And the idol is this object. Regardless of a denomination or a a style, any church or any building or any group that would take objects and cause people to advance their worship in the direction of that object that without the object in the room, they can't do it. They're in trouble territory easily. So if they say to you, you have to walk to this object, you have to make certain kind of respectful or or worshipful uh, stances or take certain steps or say certain things whenever you pass by this thing, whenever you stand in front of this thing, this is where we do this certain thing. Well, why is that thing at all involved with my worship of a God who is not localized to any one place and cannot be seen? Well, that's an idol. Now, how has it affected my heart and my approach to worship? Well, then that becomes an open question. For some, perhaps they've looked past it and it means nothing to them. And for others, perhaps it means everything. The very fact that it's even in the conversation, though, is a dangerous uh, opportunity for someone to get the wrong idea, and what God sees in the heart of any given individual that 's between him and that person, but the point is this is mocking someone who would take a physical object of the earth and put it up in a place where they then bow down to it or genuflect to it or whatever the way is we turn we put our worship in front of it. The definition is provided in the text if you break it out from the text itself and look at what he 's saying, do you have an object a wor- an object of worship and People are bowing down before it. And look at some of the things they're said to say to this object. Deliver me, for you are my God. Well, whether you use exactly those words or not, the sentiment is often the same, right? My sister is sick. Healer, please. You know, deliver me your power coming to me in some way. This, he says, is an abomination. That's the reality of idol worship. So an idol is any graven image that we view to be God. It becomes a substitute or a replacement for God. And we pray to it and seek assistance from it. That's an impediment to the son that takes the opportunity for Christ to arrive and puts an impediment in the people for the sake of what the Messiah comes to do in offering himself. Now, in the face of that, again, God tempers this message of judgment or of condemnation with one of mercy. The back and forth continues. Verse 21, he says, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel, and you will not be forgotten, forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So, idol worship is foolish, it's going to be judged, but in its place I'm going to supply grace and mercy. Now, that statement leaves Isaiah. He's doing this a couple times tonight. Here's one of the examples. Every time God brings up this same point that despite all your problems, mercy and grace is my way of redeeming you, you can kind of sense Isaiah. Every time he gets those words from God... In his heart, he's like, hallelujah, thank goodness for that, right? And he says a quick little praise every time he hears this. He'll do it twice tonight, at least one time tonight, right now. Verse 23, shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel, he shows forth his glory. That's an aside from Isaiah to to himself or to us speaking about this plan that God has revealed. From there, the Lord declares how he intends to provide that redemption. There's the ultimate redemption of the last days in tribulation. There's a near-term redemption in how he pulls them out of the bondage of of Babylon. Remember, that's a common theme in Isaiah. He's always got a long-term view of what he's planning to do and then a short-term view. And in most cases, the short-term behavior is a perfect picture of that long-term behavior. They, they line up very closely in, in the way they take place. What's the short-term redemption then for the nation of Israel? The one that he's promising that will come in the short term. Returning them from Babylon. If you all know Ezra, Nehemiah, that, that section of the Old Testament, you're well fam, already well familiar with how that return takes place. How well, I read the first five verses of Ezra already. You got the sense just in those verses how it started, right? We want to look at what he has to say here now about how He's going to provide that redemption. But sovereignty, God's sovereignty over history, becomes really the main issue. Look at verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am the Maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by Myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness confirming the word of his servant and performing the purposes or the purpose of his messengers. It is I who says of of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. This is an awesome statement of sovereignty. And it sets up what follows. God the Father calls himself first Israel's redeemer. And he says he's the one who's making fools of people who try to divine the future. And of those men who would rely on the occult uh, for power and for wisdom for their own knowledge. The wise men, he says, I'm going to turn their knowledge to foolishness. So God is all about showing the foolishness of men who would rely on themselves or on the occult. And in place of that, he's making his plans come into place. And to make his main point here, he declares here now in the text of Isaiah, a hundred years before they go into captivity, long before the Medo-Persians ever come to power, before they become a dominant power in the world, Long before a man named Cyrus is ever born, he declares here that that man, by name, will be the one who will bring them back and deliver them to the city and declare the city to be rebuilt and declare the temple to be rebuilt. Now, Isaiah is writing this 150 years before any of this takes place. There's no denying that. I mean, the historical accuracy and the the reality of when the text was written is not in dispute, except by those who would refuse to accept scripture on its face. And the accuracy of the prediction is absolutely indisputable. So here is Isaiah being told by God what to say 150 years before it takes place. He names the man, declares what God will do through him. Now, in giving this passage careful thought, we need to ask ourselves, what does sovereignty mean? What does it mean? For example, is there any indication here or elsewhere in Scripture that God ever asked Cyrus what he wanted to do? Did he ever invite Cyrus to be this person to do these things? Did he ever extend to him an offer? Did Cyrus have to walk down the aisle and accept this offer to do what God asked him to do? No. God decided before Cyrus was born, which is evidenced by when this was written, he decided before he was born that Cyrus would be his instrument and that that chosen man would accomplish a very specific task. And therefore, if God declares it, it will happen. Daniel, the prophet, was one of those who was in Israel taken captive by Babylon. He was a noble person. He was a person of some standing in in Israel. And as a result, he was brought into the council of the king. When the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon, Daniel was still there, living, respected. And Daniel found his way, of course, into the court of of the new king, Cyrus of Persia, who had come in and taken control. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote in A.D. 75 that Daniel showed Cyrus this passage from Isaiah 44 when he was in the court. And when Cyrus saw his own name recorded in Jewish scripture from 150 years earlier, imagine the man's surprise when you see your own name recorded and all that was describing what you did is perfectly laid out in the text. Josephus goes on to say that because Daniel showed Cyrus this passage, that led directly to Cyrus allowing the Jews to return to Israel, to the decree that we hear described in Ezra. God saw to it that there would be somebody in the court who could read Hebrew to the man and explain it to him. So that when the time came, all that he decreed Cyrus would do, he would do. Now, you could argue for the sake of discussion, well, would Cyrus have done it if he hadn't heard about it? I mean, that's all moot because God ensured that it all happened. He made the way possible because of how he brought it about. But Cyrus himself, probably if he was a smart man, looking at the accuracy of the text, would have made the obvious conclusion. If all this happened to me so far is by a God that I've never known and he's brought me to this point and now he's telling me that the reason he did it was so that my people could be freed, these people could be freed, I better let them go. There was never going to be any other way, but the point is that may have been the way God worked it out in his mind. Josephus says that that's why the Jews were allowed to return to Israel. Do you think God might have expected Daniel to show this text to Cyrus? And when Cyrus saw his own name, what do you think he probably asked? When the first part of chapter 44, the part I've read so far to you, when that was read to Cyrus, what do you think his next question was? What would you ask if you had heard that much so far? What else does it say? What comes next? Look at what comes next. God now speaks specifically to Cyrus. Cyrus was led up to this moment through the text by Daniel. And then Daniel says, God has something to say to you specifically. He recorded these words for you so that you would hear them now. Listen to what God says to Cyrus, chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings and to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness. And hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name for the sake of Jacob, my servant and Israel, my chosen one. I have also called you by your name and have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. So God addresses Cyrus. He calls him his anointed. What do you think the word anointed means in Hebrew here? It's actually literally translated Messiah. Messiah. Now, he's not declaring Cyrus to be the Messiah. We know that, of course, but it misses a point. He becomes a type. God actually sets up Cyrus as a type for his son in at least a couple of ways. He is the one who leads Israel out of their bondage. And he prefigures their redemption from tribulation when the Messiah returns for them. He becomes a bit of a picture or a type of Christ. God says he will make Cyrus a powerful, invincible world power. Another type of Christ in that. God will ensure that wherever he goes, he will be successful. He will make smooth the path before him. Another type for Christ. Another way in which he prefigures Christ. What that means literally is Cyrus in his day was an almost invincible world power. All of these details fit perfectly with the history we know of this man. He was famous in his day for the ease with which he conquered previously impregnable cities. Cities like Sargas and Babylon itself. Cities that no one thought could ever be penetrated. He took them with ease. This would suggest or tell us that that was because God ensured that it would be by ease so that we would know God was working to do that, so that God would be glorified. Babylon, history tells us, was a city so large it had over a hundred gates in the city walls around Babylon, magnificent city. And those gates were unique in that they were made of bronze with iron bars. Did you notice in the text, in verse 2, he says, "'I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars.'" a prophecy of how they will succeed against Babylon, a city that no one thought could be taken. He goes on to say in the next verse that Cyrus will have great wealth, but that wealth will come from secret, dark places. Well, when Cyrus invaded the Lydian Empire, which had as its capital city Sargas, another incredibly well-defended city, it was a city that was ruled by a king, King Croesus. You ever heard that term? He went by another famous name. You know what that name is? King Midas. He was famous for his riches in his day. It was a very wealthy king. And he was so famous for his quantities of gold that he became known as the king with the golden touch, which is where we get the term Midas from, King Midas, or riches Croesus. It's another term. He hid most of that gold in underground vaults and underground passageways. When Cyrus invaded, God ensured that Cyrus's men would learn the location of those passageways so that they would find all that gold, because according to what he tells Isaiah, I made sure that you would be rich by showing you these secret places where you would find your wealth. He made him, in his day, easily the richest man. Depending on how much gold he found, it's always hard to estimate these things, but most scholars have come to believe he had the equivalent of billions of dollars of wealth for his day with what he found in his conquests of these major cities. Why does God allow Cyrus so much success? Well, he said in the text we read that he was raised up for two purposes, given all of this might, given all of this ease for two purposes. Verse four, Isaiah says it will happen for the sake of Jacob. God intends, in other words, to use Cyrus to free Israel from Babylon. You can't free Israel from Babylon unless you're stronger than Babylon, unless you're able to conquer them. So he's got to get stronger than Babylon. He's got to be the world power of the time. And so God makes him that way. In fact, we know, as I've said already, Cyrus was so impressed to learn all of what he learned from Daniel that that causes him to follow through and let them go to do what he said he wanted him to do here to free uh, Israel. Notice in the same verse that God says, I have called Cyrus for these things. He always he ends it twice now with saying the same thing. He says, though you have not known me. And then in verse five again, he says, I've girded you. That's a fancy Bible word for I've equipped you. I've equipped you, Cyrus, for this success, even though you do not know me or have not known me. Make no mistake, Cyrus was an evil man. He was a destructive force in the world. He conquered, he destroyed, he pillaged and ravaged and so on. He did all the classic things that a conquering king does. He was not a good guy in that sense. And these statements that you do not know me, he never knew God. There's no evidence in Scripture he was, quote, believing in the true God. He knew him only in the sense that Daniel introduced him as this God of Israel, not, not Cyrus's God, but your God, but this God of Israel who made me successful. He acknowledged him in that sense, but that's not the same thing as faith. Now, the destructive force that was made strong by God's hand was ultimately for good purpose, according to God's plan for Israel. But if a man can be used by God in this way and not know God, What does it say about God's sovereignty? God does not need a, quote, personal relationship with someone to make him do whatever he wants, however he wants. And the man's perception of that doesn't mean he feels like he's being controlled like a robot, the way we tend to caricature it, the way we tend to minimize it. God's powerful enough to direct you and to do it in a way you don't even know he's doing it. That's what sovereignty means. When we diminish it by putting it on a balance with human will and declaring that somehow they have equal tension and then try to make it sound better by saying, but that's the way God wants it. We're just proving to people we haven't read our Bible because the Bible never makes that claim or even allows room for it. This passage, among many others, but maybe more so than most, this passage makes that utterly clear. Though you don't know me, I've done all these things through you. That leads to the second reason God did this. He says he did it that the world might know that the God of Israel is the true God. So he did it once for his for the sake of Jacob, and then secondly, for the sake of his name. The way God carried through on these prophecies proves he is the one and only true God. Verse 7 makes that point succinctly. He says, I'm the one creating both light and darkness, bringing good things and bringing calamity. All things in creation come from God's decree and according to his purpose. All things. It's a challenging verse. One of my favorite, when I get to a point in a discussion with someone about whether or not, for example, there could be a loving God if, and then insert your favorite world calamity. How can there be a loving God if, and then just insert whatever the latest world disaster is? Isaiah says God does all these things. The immediate after effects of his work is not the right point in time in which to judge them. If you were Israel the day after you're dragged into Babylon, that's the worst possible moment to judge whether or not God is good. For it is a myopic view from your point of view, from my point of view, in judging a God who has the entire history of humankind in view at all times. So the problem is not whether or not God can be trusted in the midst of disaster. The problem is do we put that disaster into a timeline that includes a lot of other stuff that came before and will come after. Only then do we have any hope to understand it. It's a powerful verse. It contends with those who see God as only half of a God, only a God who's in control of half of creation, that being the good half. Verse 8, he says, drip down, O heavens, from above and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. So Isaiah there in verse 8 inserts another one of those one verse songs of praise, probably because of what had just come before it when God says, I'm the one who does all these things. So that prompts another praise for a verse. But then in verses 9 through 13, now listen to these verses. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. In earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth, will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands and I ordained all the host. I have aroused in him righteousness and I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. For those who might have heard the earlier verses from Isaiah where God says, I'm doing all these things through my servant. Though he doesn't know me, I'm doing all these things through Cyrus. For the one who would hear that and scoff perhaps at the idea that God would cause calamity or that he could dare work through a pagan man like Cyrus and use him like that without the man knowing him, without the man agreeing to do it all, without the man faithfully following him in obedience willfully. How could God dare do that? That's not what God does. God then prepares for that person a wake-up call, in my opinion, in these verses. He says... There is woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. What is quarreling in this context? What is a quarrel in this context? It's defined as someone questioning God's way of working in his creation. To question him, to doubt him, to contend with the fact that God has the power and the right to do these things is by definition a quarrel. And to the one who would quarrel with God on that way, in that way, what does God say? Woe. Woe is in bad news, bad things. And I think it depends on who the person is, right? If it's someone whose quarrel is such that it's an impediment to faith, well, then the woe is ultimately the judgment fires that come for anyone in that case. But if the woe here is of the believer, well, I think it comes down to a lot of potential pitfalls in the walk of a believer who does not acknowledge the sovereignty of God in their life. It is a serious impediment to a walk, to an understanding of how God uses us, to so the way we are to respond to Him. The whole argument is best captured at the end of verse 9. He says will the one being formed by the maker look up at the maker and say to the one who's forming him, you have no hands. Isn't that silly? Can you imagine the pot coming to life with a mouth to talk? And as your hands are on the pot making it, it would look at you and say, you have no hands. That nonsensical kind of comment is God's way of explaining what it sounds like to him when those in his creation would look at him and deny him anything he might want to do would set limits, in other words, and say, well, God does all these things, but he would never do X. Whatever that is, that's the equivalent of saying he has no hands. If that's true, if the one forming you has no hands, then you don't exist. Likewise, if you believe that God observes some kind of boundary or some kind of restraint in how far he's willing to influence his creation, then you're actually arguing against your own existence at some level. The reality is, You don't want God to exercise any restraint in a creation in which he is purposed to turn all things to good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Restraint under that circumstance helps none of us. How far is he willing to intrude on the circumstances of situation on the quote will of the people who are involved for those who would hold to the view that God observes restraint in the will of men? Well, what good is that God if the point is to see him work in his creation to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? How do I know he's willing to intrude on the will of those who are working in this situation? The fact that he would take a man like Cyrus before he's born and not just intrude on his will, dictate his will, and do it for men who did not know him, is proof all in on its own that there is no such thing as God's restraint in the lives or in the world that he's created. And good thing he isn't restrained. That's what makes him God. This is not a panacea for all situations. There are difficult situations which we have a hard time accepting. But the problem with turning that difficulty into a theological argument, that's where you run into trouble. If I have trouble in a circumstance of life that's difficult, and I turn that into some argument against God's will at work, if I say, well, God couldn't allow this, God would never permit this, this must be from something other than God, I may be creating a cocoon for myself to protect myself from the hurt of the situation, and in some sense, I'm trying to protect God's character or his image. But it's, it's, a, it's not theologically sound according to Scripture. We have to turn that around. and We have to say to ourselves, how is it that I can find the goodness of God's purpose in this? Or, more importantly, praise his name no matter what. Because I think that would be Paul's fundamental lesson out of books like Philippians, which is, you know, he was at the darkest point of his life at points along the way. But it was even then that he praised God without restraint, without condition, Without an expectation that you've got to show me the good that's coming from this, or else I can't praise you until I see the good that's coming from it. Well, maybe what you're seeing is what you need to praise God about without any understanding of how it turns to good. Where else have you heard this passage, the passage about the maker talking back, the clay talking back to his maker? Where is that famously used? Romans 9. I think Paul is quoting. Now, if I'm right, when a New Testament writer quotes an Old Testament passage, what is implied? Not just that those particular words are what matters to the writer, but the whole passage, right? He takes a phrase out of a larger passage. He quotes that phrase, but it's implied. It's understood that as you read it, you should go back and understand the whole context and know the whole context because the writer is invoking that whole context to the argument he's making. So what is the whole context of this argument, of this passage in Isaiah, when applied to Romans 9? Romans 9.16 In the same section of Romans where this verse comes up, look at what Paul's arguing. He says, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Sounds a lot like Cyrus, doesn't it? Then verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he has mercy and he hardens whom he desires. Now you will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? for who resists his will. On the contrary, Paul says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, "Why did you make me like this?" will it? Or does the potter have right not have or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory so in other words to that family who is caught up in the babylonian captivity for their sins for the sins of their nation they're certainly not without guilt they may be those vessels prepared for destruction Or maybe they're faithful and they're caught up in this judgment and they'll be brought into glory at their death. But the point is, God is free to take anybody in any point and use them any way he wants. That's what makes him God. And our judging of that activity is inappropriate, period. It's the maker being judged by his creation. It's inappropriate by definition. We have no basis, no standing, no perspective, no understanding on which to make that kind of judgment. Because by the nature of our existence, we come to that discussion with a very narrow, limited perspective. So if I'm a happy Christian with everything going right, God's great. And if I'm a Christian in dire trouble or tests or circumstances, God's terrible. Is that the way we judge God? That makes no sense on its face. There's probably a million reasons why God chooses certain things for certain people and certain things for other people, right? And we can simplify it to help ourselves understand it. We can say, well, he's he's brought us through trials to strengthen us. Scripture makes that point itself. Or he's denied me some pleasures because he knows if I had them, I would go the wrong way with them in my life. They would tempt me into doing the wrong. I mean, there's a million of those kinds of reasons and all of them probably valid at different times. But just the fact that we can come up with reasons doesn't mean that if I don't have a reason, it's not true. Or that if I can't understand the reason, God's in trouble with me. Follow what I'm saying? Sometimes we know the reason. Sometimes there's no identifiable reason why an infant dies why uh, people lose their job, why things happen in life that don't seem to connect in some way to God's plan for glory, we have to not judge Him on the basis of what we can see. Paul references these verses from Isaiah because he's making the same point here in Romans 9 that I think Isaiah is making in, Ro- in Isaiah 44 and 45, and he wants the connection to be clear in the mind of the reader. As God decides, some men are set on a path to destruction while others are set on a path to glory. This is the right of the Creator. And when we doubt his authority or that he works in this way, we are quarreling with God. And the quarrel will bring us woe. Like the child who would question the earthly father and mother concerning how they gave birth. Understanding this principle is not a prerequisite to accepting it. Understanding it to our satisfaction is not a prerequisite to accepting it. And the example of Cyrus proves that this is how God chooses to work in his creation. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminder in your scriptures this, this evening of, of your power and your sovereignty and your creation. For we know you are good, and we know, Father, your purposes are good to those you call. And we ask, Father, that you would exert your power and your sovereignty in this creation as you, are, will, uh, as you will to do, and that you will do it, Father, in such a way that we could be useful to you in that glory and that you would uh, continue, Father, to show us where you can, how it is that you are working to our good. Strengthen our faith in the face of trials, Father, and help us to comfort others who are facing trial. And Lord, I pray we come back, we continue in this study, we would continue in the diligence that is required, and you would continue to show us more of yourself through it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.